How many of us know that there's times in life, there's seasons where things are probably getting a little too complicated, a little too convoluted, and you might say or you might hear somebody say, we have to go back to the basics. We got to return back to the foundation. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's what today's teaching is going to be about. It's going to be about the centrality of faith. Friends, we are gathered in a house of faith, and yet somehow do we not know this? We can follow Jesus and stop trusting in Jesus. And you might say, well, pastor, that doesn't really make sense. But when is the last time the Lord has spoken to your heart and said, step out in faith and trust me. Step out in faith and believe in me. Step out in faith and know me. There's an amazing story in the book of Revelation where Jesus is speaking to seven churches. And these are seven typical reactions to Jesus. And one of the churches He is standing outside the church. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens the door, I will enter in and have fellowship, sup with them. But of course, the imagery is this, what? Jesus is outside the church, knocking at the door while they have church without him. Sometimes we need to slow down, look around, and come back to the basics. It reminded me of a story I heard a couple years ago, a story of the late, great Green Bay Packers coach, Vince Lombardi. And the year was 1961. It was 1961, and it was right after the Green Bay Packers, which Vince Lombardi is the coach of, they just lost the NFL championship game to none other than the Philadelphia Eagles. And that summer, it was July, and everybody was showing up. It was about 38 coaches and players, and they were showing up for training day, and they were excited to bounce back. They felt um, heartbroken and humiliated by their last second, last quarter loss to the Eagles, and now they're coming in, and they want to see what Vince Lombardi, one of, or some people argue, the greatest NFL coach who's ever lived, and they want to see what is he going to come up with. What new schemes and what new plays? What kind of razzle-dazzle is he going to come in and wow us with? And what does Vince Lombardi do? He shows up, he walks in, doesn't say a word, and he holds up the pigskin. And he just says this, this is a football They're all professional football players. They're all professional football coaches. He's, in fact, the greatest football coach who perhaps has ever lived. And that's your speech? That's the plan? This is a football? We could have told you that. Anyone playing peewee football could have told you that. What was he trying to do? Remind them that there is no Football without football it may seem simple, yet it's totally profound. Friends, it is possible, tragically, 
possible to come to church and not believe? Or perhaps to believe at one point in your life and to get so accustomed to not Christianity but churchianity, to get so apathetic to the passionate, intimate, lavish love of Jesus Christ that yes, it's not football that we're forgetting, but it's belief, it's trust, it's love. And that's the situation, that's the scene here in John chapter 6. Jesus has a large crowd of people that are following him, a crowd of people that heard about his miracles, but held him multiplying the bread and the fish. They had their bellies filled and they had their eyes filled with wonder at who this Jesus is. They believed in Jesus as a teacher, as a prophet. They believed in Jesus not only as a miracle worker, but they wanted to make Jesus their king. Friends, the crowd believed. But Jesus is about to say, what you're truly believing in is not me. They believed in him. They were following him. They were looking for him to fill their stomachs and heal their bodies. They believed Jesus could perform miracles. Jesus is going to say something that's not only clarifying, but also probably something that was offensive to their ears and maybe even to ours. This is the football. This is Jesus Christ. Not the Jesus of culture, the Jesus of Scripture. Not the Jesus of my design, but the Jesus that is divine. The Jesus that perhaps I never asked for. And if I'm honest, perhaps sometimes the Jesus that I do not want. But the Bible says he is the Jesus that is. And when we come to terms and to grips, not with a Jesus of our own personal design, a Jesus that never disagrees with us, a Jesus that never corrects us, a Jesus that looks a whole lot like us. That's when true belief begins. And that's when the bread of life becomes real. That's when, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes, receives, knows me will never hunger. That is the turning point. It's not just generic belief, but it's belief in Christ and who he is. Let's look at it, shall we? Just two verses to start us out. We read verse 35 last week in our study, and now we're going to see that this crowd isn't accepting the invitation because they don't really believe in what Jesus says. All eyes on scripture, John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Let's pause right there. Friends, oftentimes, as you can imagine, in my conversations with people, they know I'm a pastor, they know I'm a Christian, and they often say, well, pastor, I'm just not religious. I'm not a religious person, to which I like to say, yeah, neither am I. To a certain degree, of course. Of course, that's tongue-in-cheek. No, the truth is, the reality is, 
is that our faith goes deeper than any ritual. Our faith is about a relationship. But the also, the accompanying truth is this. Friends, this is so helpful, so clarifying. And I hope it helps us to taste of the bread of life all the more. And its sweetness would feel like something new in your soul this morning. Listen, everyone's religious. When we say we're not religious, that probably means you don't go to a church or a place of worship once a week and sing songs and hear a message. Perhaps you don't read the book. Perhaps you don't practice the principles. But just because you say you're not religious doesn't mean you don't believe. No, your house of worship may be your bar. Your house of worship might be a stadium. Your house of worship might be your workplace. Perhaps your subject and object of worship is not Jesus Christ, but it's that person that you see in the morning, in the mirror, every single morning. Because in the end, the only person you're trusting in, the only person that you really believe is going to save yourself, your future, your family, is you. You see, this is why we always believe. When the Bible says, believe in Christ, it's not saying, okay, you didn't believe anything before. You weren't religious before. No, it's saying, turn from all those other beliefs, all those other counterfeit saviors, and return to Jesus. Believe in him and trust in him. And when we believe, what are we doing? We are refusing to allow those counterfeit idols to determine and define our belief. Because we know this, right? All of our behaviors are the overflow of our beliefs. That our actions are determined by our attitudes. Friends, listen. When a couple, a married couple, stops believing in each other and stops believing in their future, watch when separation and divorce comes quickly. It's not just, okay, there's no more love there. It's there's no more belief there. There's no hope there because belief is the power of hope. It's to keep moving. It's to say, okay, I believe that there is something here. And if we stop believing, then we will stop living it and we will give up. When we see this in Scripture, and we see it from Old Testament to New, Genesis to Revelation, we see that God is passionate, in fact, jealous for our belief. Now, we might struggle with the idea of God being a jealous God, but jealousy in and of itself is not a sin. In the same way, anger in and of itself is not a sin. God yes, demonstrates his perfectly loving and simultaneously just anger. Jesus flips those tables sometimes. He cracks that whip sometimes. He loves his children and he disciplines them sometimes. But also, how good it is that the God who loves us, the God who, it's his will that we come to his son who chose us, perseveres us, will not share us with anyone. Friends, if I was okay with my wife, Melissa, going out and dating and 
being with all these other women, what would that say about me and what would that say about us? If I was okay with it, like, it's, it's good, it's cool. It's not healthy, right? In fact, you can make a good argument, I don't really love her. No, the Bible says, and it's one of the most celebrated, well-known, powerful passages and chapters in all the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. Now, you might not know a chapter, but you know the contents. It is the Ten Commandments. And the way it starts out, before God gives all these behavioral commandments, which are important, before the behavioral commandments, it's rooted in who he is as Savior, and then it's founded in belief in him as our only God. Listen, now, if you've been hearing the Ten Commandments for a long time, perhaps you can't remember them all, perhaps you can't name them all, I'm hoping and praying that God gives you fresh ears right now to hear them and to see how perhaps we have reduced behavior to a faith-less, love-less, gratitude-less following. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 says this, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What God has done and what God does is before he gives us commandments, he saves us. God set his people free to do what? To live free. And we saw this, and you've heard us say it often, that it was harder to take Israel it was harder to take the Egypt out of Israel than it was to take Israel out of Egypt. They went out into the promised land, still looking for man-made created idols to worship. That is the root, the foundation of these Ten Commandments. Our God is a saving God, but he's also a protecting, loving, and yes, perfectly jealous God. Listen, everyone, if you have ears to hear Listen, God says, commandment number one, you shall have no gods before me. It's not just like before. It's not just proximity. It's intimacy. No gods before me, period. Full stop. No asterisks, right? No uh, potential fine print. Number one, commandment number one. There is a clarifier. He builds upon that. Commandment number two. You should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or to serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he talks about this. Visiting the sin of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of, some generations say generations, thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. All the commandments, the behavioral commandments about thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt respect um, and honor your parents, covet, all that. It all overflows from worship. It's all out of the overflow of knowing the God who saved us from our sin, from death, and from that lying, accusing enemy, Satan. So because our hearts are filled with gratitude, we want to worship him. And when we want to worship him, that means we want to follow him. We want to believe in him because he's a good God. 
And we see his Ten Commandments, not just as Ten Commandments, but Ten Blessings. That's the path to freedom. But man, this is tricky, isn't it? It's hard, isn't it? Like, I, I've shared this before with you. Like, no one comes into my office and says, Pastor, I'm really, really lost in my idolatry today. <laughs> man, I can't stop worshiping the idols. What they'll say, and I get it, I totally get it, is they'll show a symptom of the idolatry, right? I can't stop looking at this on my computer, if you know what I mean. I can't stop living for not the almighty God, but the almighty dollar. I can't stop feeling bitter and angry and overwhelmed by all the chaos I see around me, all that stuff. So oftentimes that is a symptom. And I love it because Jesus gets right to the heart. He gets right to the disease. And he says to the crowd, Yes, you might believe in me as a miracle worker, as a teacher, as a prophet, and you might even want me as king, but you don't believe in me. Does this still happen today? Friends, I'm going to put a picture up on the screen, and it's a little hard to see because it's a dark picture, but it's a picture of a church up in New York, a church up in New York, a Presbyterian church, that brought in a Slavic pagan idol. They took away the pulpit, they took away the Lord's table, and they put this glowing green idol. If you can't see it too well, I'm going to invite you to turn around and look at the TV screen behind you. The last three roads, you're not going to be able to see it. But that's an image. Look at this thing. It has two eyes. It has three mouths. And it's right there in the center of the sanctuary. What it was was an attempt by the church to be very, very inclusive. To be very, very relevant. How many of us know that sometimes the church goes off the cliff with maybe some quote-unquote good intentions. Oh, we want to be relevant. We want to be progressive. We want to make sure everybody knows that wherever you are and whatever you believe, it doesn't matter. So much so that we're going to set up this monstrosity in the middle of the sanctuary. This is a literal God, a Slavic God. His name, it's an idol. Its name was Svai Atovid, and he was the Slavic god of war, fertility, and abundance in the Baltic region. You can go to the next slide. I don't even like looking at it. What probably captures our heart more than Slavidokik, whatever his name was, are the idols we can't see. Not only that, but the false Jesuses that we might have become accustomed to worship. When we hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, and whoever believes in me and comes to me will never hunger, it's what we talked about last week, guys. I mean, we might believe in Jesus, but do we believe Jesus? Because if we did, man, we would stop falling into those same traps. We would stop getting entangled in the same sin. We would stop going to the world to satisfy us in the way that only God can, right? What ha needs to happen? Jesus is going straight to our heart. He's purifying our beliefs, and he's going to replace it. You see, this is what our God does, right? When we, it's an old-fashioned word, but so important, when we repent, when we turn from sin, we're also turning from the beliefs that promoted and propped up the sin, and we are returning back to our Savior, but also belief and trust in him as Savior. And those two things are always connected. 
So Jesus is going to not only say, you're not believing in me, but he's going to give, friends, if we have ears to hear, he's going to give, I'm getting excited, can you tell I'm on one foot? He's going to give you a vision of the one that you believe in, and oh, how could anyone ever turn from this? The beauty of it, the power of it, the promise of it, and yet, tragically, as we will see at the end of John 6, the crowd will turn away. Why? Well, let's look. As we read verses 37 through 40, I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to ask you to circle, underline, if you feel comfortable doing that in your Bible, your own study Bible. You can even do it in the church Bible. Circle the word will, okay? Let's take a look. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's good news. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's a beautiful thing, is it not? Father and Son. The triune Godhead, which we try to understand but really can't. But while they are united in their ontology, you understand what that means? In their being. We also see that they're united in their volition, meaning their will. They are one God, triune, co-eternal, co-equal, three and one. But sometimes we fall into this idea or this understanding that God the Father is this judging, condemning uh, uh, God and deity who's distant and detached. And let's be honest, sometimes we think this, he's just putting up with us. He doesn't really love us. I mean, maybe he does because he's like contractually obliged to because like he's God and that's what maybe God should do. But he knows me and I know me and I don't think any God could truly love me. Friends, did you hear what you just heard? Jesus came, yes, out of love for you, but because it was the will of our good father. We can't make any separation here. It's not like God is a distant, detached, angry deity. Of course, there is times when he is filled with his just right wrath. But listen, and then somehow think that Jesus is the compassionate one. It's not the good, cap, good cop, bad cop. No, what we see here is that Jesus, he is doing the will of the Father. So why do the crowds not believe? First and foremost, God is sovereign and God is in control. Jesus is going to say this. He's going to make a very exclusive truth with a very inclusive invitation. He's going to say in verse 37, all that the Father will give to me will come to me. So all who will come to know Christ, the Father will give. And notice now the word, whoever, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So a lot of people struggle with this, right? There's a lot of people that discuss elections. How much of our time is talked about election? Oh gosh, come on, people. Come on. Some of us, we don't just 
tolerate politics. We live politics. It's a constant 24-7 news cycle all the time, every day. Who's going to get elected? Who's going to be in control? Is it the elephants or is it the donkeys? Is it this guy or that guy? Yet when the Bible talks about election, we're like, oh, I ain't going anywhere near that. I'm not going anywhere near a God who loves me enough to choose. Think of it this way. Election is not just about God choosing. It's about, as the Bible says, God adopting. If you've ever adopted a child, you know what a profound reflection that is of the gospel. Because you're taking a child that didn't have a home, didn't have security, didn't have love, didn't have a family identity, and whereas all children are a gift from God and we love our biological children, you're saying, no, you're not mine, but today you will be. Today I'm choosing you. I am choosing you to place my affection upon. I am choosing you and bringing you in to be a son and daughter of mine. And how is that possible? How does God adopt? How does God save? How does God grow his family with more sons and daughters? Through his son. So yes, there is a supernatural, mysterious way that God sovereignly works, but simultaneously in the same verse, it says whoever. And it says everyone. It says Jesus is not going to cast out anybody. So you might wonder, all right, God, am I saved? Do you love me? And the answer is, does he love you? Yes. Are you saved? The question is, do you believe? Have you come to him? Because if, if you come to him, and I don't care how bad your track record is, I don't care how many mistakes you've made, I don't care what you do in the deepest, darkest, uh, most decrepit and depraved moments of your life, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. You can come to him. And when we believe, it's revealed that it is the will of the Father, that we love because he first loved us. That before we chose him, he chose us. So this is not something to get discouraged about. This is good news to be rejoiced in because it is God's will. And when it's God's will, that helps us to find security and peace when we don't feel very spiritual, when we don't feel very Christian, when we often get discouraged because we keep stumbling and falling. Jesus is saying, this is what belief looks like. You believe. Yes, because you have come to me. But you believe because the Father is carrying you. He says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father. If you're looking at your Bible, verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now Jesus is talking to a crowd here. And they're literally looking at him. But this word applies to those that can't see him today. In fact, the Bible says there's greater blessing for those who believe without literally seeing him. Once again, it comes back to faith. It always was about faith. Believing in a God we can't see. Trusting in a Savior that we can't physically touch. And yet, when we do believe... His presence is nearer and closer and better than any other physical, tangible, temporal experience we've ever had. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you were there. Perhaps you need to return back to there. I remember when I first believed. 
not just believed about, not just knew about. It's one thing to know about God. Friends, real quick, all eyes up at me. But many people miss Jesus by 12 inches, the distance between their head and their hearts. Because, yes, they have a profession of faith, but they don't have possession of faith. Jesus says, do you believe in me? Because if you do, I'll never cast you out. If you believe in me, I will raise you up. And why do people not believe? Because they refuse to surrender. Here's the truth. When we look upon the face of Jesus, what we're doing is we are believing in him as Savior and not myself, not ourselves. I remember when I first came to Saving Faith in Jesus Christ. I grew up down in South Jersey. I was a kid on the outside that looked like everything was good. I had lots of friends, varsity sports player, senior class president, homecoming king, yada, yada, yada. It was all garbage and fake and trash. Everybody looked at me and said, it's a good kid. I knew the truth. I knew on the inside I was empty and I was hollow. And on the outside, my family was falling apart. Mommy and daddy separated. Mommy and daddy divorced. I'm only seeing daddy once in a while. And then my mom comes to saving faith in Jesus. And something changes. And I'm like, okay, what is this? This was not part of the plan. I was going to eat, drink, be merry, and die. Atheism wasn't the temptation. I believed in God. I probably even believed in, in Jesus in some way. But it wasn't until I started hearing the Bible being taught the Christ of Scripture, not of culture, being taught the Jesus that is, not the Jesus I want, that I started to really believe. Came down to one night. One night. And you've heard this story, but I'm going to tell you a part that I've never told anybody. Ready? One night I went to a youth group out my aunt and uncle's spirit-filled born-again believers, and I went to the youth group. And now there's a hundred teenagers worshiping Jesus, passionate about Jesus, zealous about Jesus. I said, I am in absolute turmoil in my heart, fighting against God, pulling back against God, refusing to surrender to God, and God drags me into his kingdom. He drags me into his kingdom because of his grace. That night, after I'm wrestling with what the youth pastor said, I cry out, and I say, Jesus, if this is true, what my mom says is true, my aunt and uncle says it's true, my cousin says it's true, the Bible says it's true, Jesus says it's true, I need to know it because I'm a mess. Empty and hollow. Forgive me of my sin, God. Fill me today, God. Make this love real, God. And after years of fighting and pushing back, it came to the end. I waved the white flag of surrender and the grace of God invaded and exploded in my heart. Tears trickled down. Listen, I cry myself to sleep. And I'm not a crier. But there's one thing I never shared. When the Bible says that when we look upon the face of Jesus, he'll never cast us out and we will have eternal life and he'll raise us up. When I closed my eyes that night, every single time my eyelids covered my eyeballs, I saw one face. And I still get shivers thinking about it. I still get chills. It was the face of Jesus. Crown of thorns, an outline, a shadow. And here's why I think God gave me that. And I don't talk about it too often because sometimes we can um, embellish visions and dreams even though I believe in them. It's because I think God was saying, Chris, I'm your savior today. And you're seeing my face today. Through a shadow, through your closed eyes, I want you to know 
that the same Savior and the same face that saved you today will be with you. And that day, when you close your eyes for good, I will be the one, I will be the Savior, I will be the face that you see when you open your eyes in eternity. That's the promise of Scripture. Not just the story of a 16-year-old boy, a 17-year-old boy who was visiting his cousins in Missouri. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. That's who we believe in. The question is, are we tired of churchianity and are we ready to believe in Christianity? Are we tired and weary of faking it and pretending it? Are we really ready to believe it? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your grace. We don't under, always understand how your will works, but we thank you that you are good and your will is for us to believe. Your will is for us to come to know Christ who will never cast us out. Your will is for us to come to Christ and his cross so we can be forgiven, we can be saved, and we can be raised on the last day. So friends, don't miss this moment. We invite you now, even in this time of prayer, to pray. Even during this hour of worship and faith, to believe. To truly turn from sin and return to God. To truly believe. Even as the band comes forward. I'm going to give everybody a minute to get up here. In the spirit of prayer, folks, let's focus on what we heard. Even now, as we prepare our hearts to sing, what's so very, very important is to not only hear what we just heard, but to receive it and believe it. So it's my hope and my prayer that you would right now believe and receive in Jesus Christ. He won't cast you out. He'll welcome you in. But we have to believe him for who he is. He is God. He is King. He is Lord. And He will not share your heart with any idol. So Father God, let us turn from ourselves, our sins, and our counterfeit saviors and believe in Jesus Christ. Pray this prayer with me, church, friends, if you're ready to come home and ready to trust in Christ. Heavenly Father, please forgive me of my sin. Say it to him. Cry out. If you know your desperate need for grace, you won't just be listening to a guy pray. You'll be praying to. Father God, I am a sinner in need of grace. Please forgive me. I want to know the power of Jesus' cross. Please fill me with your spirit. And help me to believe today. We pray this in Jesus' good and precious and beautiful name. Amen. Friends, if you need prayer, we invite you after we sing, and we love this song, to come forward for prayer. If you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible home with you. That's our gift. 
if Jesus Christ is at work in your life, you got to tell somebody, you got to share it. Whoever you came with, one of the pastors, one of the deacons, let someone know. But now it's right and it's good. After hearing, we pray after believing to respond and to begin worshiping. Amen? Amen. Let's rise to our feet and give God the glory for his son, Jesus Christ. The blood that was shed at Calvary, which covers anyone who believes of all of their sin. That's good news. Amen? Let's sing together.
Amen. Praise God. Power in the blood. Not just because we're bringing it with the music today, and not just because we sing our hearts and our lungs out, but because it's true. May you go forth in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, with an awareness of his presence, with belief in his saving power. And may you, Christians, friends, brothers, sisters, let the whole world know that our Jesus is alive and he will never cast them out. He will save anyone and everyone that believes in him. May you go forth in grace and peace today. We love you very much.
Yeah. 
anxious time Tracing the stars for answers And fighting through the night Searching for hidden treasure To capture distant Ready for round three? Thank you for being here today. We greatly appreciate it. Good morning, good morning. How's everyone doing? Hi, 1130 family. Beautiful day out there today? Yes and amen. So we have uh, about 80 guys up at the men's retreats right now, up on the mountains of the Pocono Mountains, studying God's word, building each other up. So here's the invitation. We're going to say the call to worship today, but here's the invitation is that we're probably going to be having a smaller crowd at our 1130 service. So we're going to ask that we would double our singing in our voices. And oftentimes that's very, very easy with these wonderful people behind me. So I'm going to invite everyone to please rise. Let's stand to our feet. The call to worship is from the book of Psalms. When we come to God, we want to hear his word. And his word helps to shape our worship and helps us to give words of praise back to him. The call to worship is the same verse on your bulletin. It's from the book of Psalms, Psalm 118, verse 24. It's probably a psalm that you have heard before. Friends, listen, this is the word of the Lord. This is the day that the Lord has made, amen? Let us rejoice. Can we say rejoice? And be glad in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this day is no ordinary day. This day is the day that you have made. This day is also the Lord's Day Sunday, where we remember, we proclaim, and yes, we rejoice that the tomb of Jesus Christ is still empty. Hallelujah. So let us rejoice, let us be glad, and let us, with hearts of gratitude, give glory and honor to the one who loves us, who's with us, and yes, who has saved us from our sin forever. We pray this in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's sing together, friend, shall we? We're having a microphone with batteries put in. Uh, John's going to mention it. If you want to say happy birthday to Glenn Kahn, it's his birthday today, so thank you, Glenn, for being here. Let's continue in worship and give glory and honor to our one good God.
Amen. Church, let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, the day that the Lord has made. But even as we sing songs on this day, here in this location, let us think of the words that we just sang. Let's envision its reality in heaven even now as the angels, the multitude of angels upon angels upon angels are surrounding and circling the throne of the Lamb who was slain, but now is risen and reigning forever and ever. And what's the song they're singing? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father God, help us to see when we receive holiness through your grace, the gift of grace, then holiness is no burden. No, holiness is freedom. Father God, build in us a desire not just to sing loud, but to dig deep and to want more of you, your grace, and your holiness in our lives so we can be a free people, free to love you and to love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said... Amen. Well, it's a joy to see you, and we are glad to worship with you, my friends, this morning. What we want to do now is we're going to dismiss the kids to their Bible study with Kingdom Kids. Ushers, please come forward. Everyone else, we're going to give you a moment to look to the left or the right, front or behind, and greet your neighbor and give them a kind, warm, Colts Neck Community Church welcome. Hi, neighbor. Hi, neighbor. Good morning, friends. As we continue in worship, I'm going to ask a simple prayer. And how many of us know the simplest questions? I'm going to ask you a simple question. The simplest questions are sometimes the hardest to answer. Here's the question Is there peace? I know everybody waits as if this is a trick question. <laughs> we're at church, of course, there's peace. What we're going to do is we're going to watch a brief video. It's almost like a documentary. A video crew went around a town around Christmas time and asked people on the street if they knew peace, if they ever experienced peace. And I think what you're going to see is very, very interesting. Let's take a look. White Ave today, and since Christmas season is the time for peace, we're asking people if they have ever experienced peace in their life and when. I don't think so, no. 
I can think of a couple things, but maybe not on air. <laughs> uh, yes. I don't know when. <laughs> peace. What kind of peace do you mean? Define peace. Inner peace? Environmental peace? <laughs> when I'm at home with my wife? You know what? The beach makes me feel peaceful. Just before bed. Going to bed. When I'm sleeping. <laughs> when I'm sitting at home on the couch on my own. I suppose as a child. I guess with my family. Backstage when the show's over. Probably when I was a kid. Yes, I have. I have. Traveling. Away from all the problems. Hiding them almost. But yes, I have. For a brief moment. It's not really like this piece everywhere, so. I don't even remember one time. When I'm doing my addiction, that's hunting and fishing. I'm an AT hunter. I'm a trapper. That's when I experience peace, when I'm away from people. My mother went through a heart attack, and I guess peace when, when uh, she got over it. <laughs> Illegal activities? <laughs> In the mountains, or like riding my horse, and going real fast. <laughs> peace is watching my little baby daughter sleep. I think I've experienced the most peace in a West African refugee camp. Well, lately, not so much, but I think, yeah, I have experienced peace in my life. Probably one time at camp, I was sitting on top of this mountain, just this beautiful view, just all these beautiful trees and lakes everywhere. I think that would probably be the time I've been most at peace in my life. Standing on the Cliffs of Moher in Ireland. Uh, probably when I went to India. I experienced peace in my life. When I see my family, because that's what the most important thing is. Every day, because my boyfriend loves me. When I became a Christian, Christmas is time of peace, except for like shopping and the chaos and stuff. Around Christmas time, I always feel really peaceful. It's a really good time of year. Right now. Because right <laughs> I'm almost done my shopping. <laughs> I guess when I've been just kind of focused on God and not letting everything else in life stress me out. So not at finals right now, no. Um, I never ex experienced peace in my life. Um, like specifically, what do you mean, like really? Getting my ear pierced? <laughs> <laughs> no, man. No, man. There's always something going on. Everything. There's always chaos going on. I think the closest I've ever came to peace Probably in Korea, in the gym. Just going to the gym every day and like, I don't know, it was, just, it was a weird sense of community because I couldn't speak any Korean and they couldn't speak any English, but, but we had a blast, you know, and everyone got along famously. And, but yeah, no, it's always a fight, man. Always a struggle, every day. I've known peace like pretty much all my life because of, I know God and that gives me peace. Every morning when I wake up next to her, I don't know, I don't see any war here, do you? <laughs> I don't know, my life's pretty peaceful. Don't really get into too many fights or arguments or don't really have to defend myself physically on a daily basis. Uh, before the age of four? Uh, usually at the hardest times in my life. Yeah, and I think that's grace. Yeah, you realize uh, what your priorities are and you um, seem to connect with people on a more real level when you're in hard times. Thank you.